Edgar August Poe Month continues here on Monster Kid Radio in episode 383 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show and welcome you to the song Octung Lab. It is from the Venezuelan surf band Los Javelin and is on their new album Cocktail Caracas and you can find that over at the Green Cookie Records website at greencookierecords.bandcamp.com check out the new album it's out now it just came out earlier this year it's awesome let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio let's talk about this week it's week three of Edgar August Poe Month and I gotta have my friend Rod Barnett on the show and I've gotta have a movie on that may not have a strong Edgar Allan Poe connection except he's actually a character in the movie yeah yeah bear with me bear with Rod bear with us as we talk about the movie Castle of Blood this week on Monster Kid Radio also on this episode of Monster Kid Radio we have a weird Wednesday report from Jeff Pullier he braved the elements and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but he braved the elements to call in a report on what he saw at last week's Weird Wednesday at the Joy Cinema here in the Portland, Oregon area. If you haven't been to the Joy Cinema and you're in the area, you're doing yourself a disservice because the Joy is awesome and Weird Wednesday is really cool. In fact, I'm going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Castle of Blood. We're going to talk about a number of other things, including, well, something that I'm going to be doing here soon. You know, that's all coming right after this. witnessing a biological chain reaction, a geometrical progression of deadly mass. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible, its core a mass of lethal radiation. Rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous, its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames. Hello, this is Rod Barnett, the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast about eclectic film from across 
the decade. On The Bloody Pit, we've covered Godzilla movies, Doctor Who movies starring Peter Cushing, The Outer Limits, Fu Manchu, Doc Savage, old radio shows, my favorite movies of all time, a Lucio Fulci film or two, 1970s science fiction movies, and a long series on the films of Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti. So if you're curious to learn a little bit about some of the stranger areas of cult film and television, join me and my rotating group of co-hosts on The Bloody Pit. You might even learn something about Coffin Joe. And that's scary, people. Very scary. But the room was quiet. Had it been a nightmare? What woke him? Was the candle in the antique mirror moving? Was there something standing by the curtains? Was he mad? The Crimson Cult. So terrifying they won't let us tell you about it here. She'd wandered alone. The passageway between the walls was damp and musty. She dropped her candle. And then I heard it. Now she has no head. It happened in Horror House. I was there. A nightmare combination of shock and terror. And you're invited behind forbidden doors. Horror House stars Frankie Avalon and Jill Hayworth. The Crimson Cult features Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee. See them together for the first time. But don't see them alone. Rated GP. Derek and the Monster Kids, this is Jeff Pallier calling with a Weird Wednesday report. As I'm hiding from the smoke that has infested the Portland area, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to leave this room later to go to tonight's Weird Wednesday, but we'll see. As for last week, it was kind of a little feature. There was a short first. Both were HP Lovecraft related. The first one was called Miasma. It was stop motion animation, about mm, five to ten minutes long, somewhere in there. It was pretty short. And all the language was in a foreign language that I couldn't identify with subtitles, but it was pretty cool. It was still very engaging. It was about uh, this small village that thinks what they've been doing with their dead is scientific and helps keep them alive. And the twist is, yes, it was keeping them alive because it was satisfying the Great Ones. And when they have a period where nobody dies... Uh, one of the great ones comes from beneath the lake and, you know, it's proceeds to slaughter the village. Anyway, it was really cool. Uh, the main feature was Edward Martin's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Now, this is based on the work of H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, Edward Martin, for those who don't know, is a Portland area filmmaker. I've worked with him before. I've been in a movie called The Dead. So this wasn't a live action, though. This was... Uh, black and white line art from a comic book series by Jason B. Thompson. And so, uh, rather than the static images, though, this was a motion comic where they take uh, images from a comic and move them in relation to each other. A few years ago, there was a company that did a bunch of these with uh, some Marvel comics and some cross-gen comics and even Watchmen. 
the really old Marvel cartoons from like the 1960s were done like this. Not true animation, but just using stuff from comics and moving it around. Uh, it's a it's a trippy, engaging story. Uh, of course, it's trippy. It's Lovecraft. Any problems you have with the plot itself cannot be blamed on uh, Edward Martin because hey, it's Lovecraft's story. The, the main character, Randolph Carter, uh, goes into the dream realm to find the city that he has dreamed of. He encounters all kinds of beasts and obstacles and uh, just stumbles into them in a way that a per- only a person in a dream could reasonably be expected to do. Uh, anyone in the waking world surely would have had more sense than to go into some of these areas that he gets into. And uh, luck certainly has a lot to do with his surviving. He just you know, blindly jumps in where eagles would even fear to tread. And he makes enemies of some monsters, but he's able to befriend other monsters. So it was a really good story. The voice of Randolph Carter was Torn Atkinson, who did a really good job. Pretty much everyone who did a voice in the movie did many voices. Even Edward Martin lends his voice to a couple of characters. Yeah, it was really cool. And as far as the art goes, most of the characters, you know, despite being, you know, a, a comic book art, have a certain realness to them. Some of the monsters are actually quite grotesque, very imaginative on the part of the artist. Uh, the main character himself, the Randolph Carter, despite being, you know, a true human, in this dream realm looks distinctly unhuman, although no one really comments on that. One of the things about him, though, is that he doesn't have a nose uh, drawn on his face, which uh, leads to the joke, of course, how does he smell? And the answer is, terrible. <laughs> anyway, so that was the dream quest of Unknown Kadath. Edward's been working on this for 15 years. Uh, IMDb actually listed as being out in 2003, and uh, it's just now apparently ready for, for wide release. So congratulations there, and I hope everyone gets a chance to check it out. If you're interested in Lovecraft, sit down for you know an hour and 40 minutes and enjoy this. And if you can find Miasma uh, to watch, that'd be great too. Have a great day, everyone, and I'm hoping I'll be able to go out later to see some sunny Shiba action at the Joy. Bye-bye. Jeff, I saw your post on Facebook earlier today, or was it yesterday? Either way, I saw your post about how you were having trouble breathing. And listeners, if you're not in the Portland, Oregon area, man, we have been covered in smoke and haze. And on the one hand, the haze actually has kept some of the extreme heat that we've been having in the area out. I don't know how that works, but it, science, it worked and it kept some of the heat out, but it really made visibility kind of weird and uh, just the air is smoky and it's really hard to breathe in places. And I surprisingly didn't have any trouble despite the fact that I have asthma and a bunch of other things going on. I feel bad for people like Jeff, though, who really did struggle because we're not used to that here. I know that other parts of the country are on fire right now, or as my wife Brenda would say, fuego! But, you know, we're not really used to it here. So, Jeff, thanks for calling that in. So, Miasma is a short film. I don't think I've seen this one, but I know it's played at a previous year's H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. It's from 2013 from director Michael Entler. I'd love to see it. I went online real quick to see if I can track down a place to see it online. I didn't find anything. So, 
it's definitely going to be on my list of movies to check out. As far as the dream quest of Unknown Kadath goes, though, I have seen this movie. I, too, consider Ed Martin a friend. I've been the subject of a short story that he wrote. Uh, I see him all the time at the Lovecraft Film Festival. I helped donate some wardrobe to his big zombie movie, Flesh of My Flesh, a while back. He's a great guy. He's a super cool guy, and I love supporting him. I'm really upset that I didn't get a chance to go last week to see the movies. That said, I did see Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath back in 2003 during its world premiere. It did show at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, and I remember this year specifically because this was the year that they actually went four nights instead of the traditional three. Normally, it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday event. This time around, they actually did some things on Thursday as well. And my wife and I went to go see Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Uh, it was awesome. It was one of the few years, I think it was the only year, that my wife actually went to the Lovecraft Film Festival with me. And it was cool to see, to see it on the big screen. And they actually played it in the lower theater at the Hollywood Theater, which means it was on the biggest screen of the three screens that they have there. So to see it big, to see it live like that, Man, it was so cool. You mentioned Torrin Atkinson as the lead actor doing the voice work. Torrin Atkinson is the lead singer from the band The Darkest of the Hillside Dickets, which is one of my favorite bands. Also very Lovecraft-specific. I've had a chance to meet him as well over the years. He's appeared at the Lovecraft Film Festival a couple of times, too. I recommend this film. If you can get your hands on it, and if you have Amazon, you can. It is available for streaming. Now, it's not part of Prime, so you do have to rent it through Amazon. It's $2.99 to rent it, $4.99 to just buy it and have it sitting there as part of your Amazon account. So check it out. Highly recommended. I'm a big fan of everything that Ed does and everything that his Hellbender Media is involved with. Always top-notch, always solid work, and I'm so thrilled that he had an opportunity to show Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath on the big screen at the Joy Cinema. The way it was meant to be seen. Jeff, I hope you survive this haze and this smoke in the air and that you have a chance to get out to the Joy Cinema tonight. The Sunny Chiba movie they're showing is Karate Warriors, which I've never seen. I've actually probably seen maybe two or three Sunny Chiba films in my life. I know very little. See, this is actually kind of a blind spot in my movie consumption. Kung Fu, Karate, martial arts movies. I know very little about and have seen even less. So, you know what? I'm eager to hear what you think of it. Let me know if it's something I should get into. Thanks again for calling in, Jeff. Recently, newspapers and magazines everywhere carried an amazing story. Reporters saw Dr. Manley Hall hypnotize actor Lugosi to give reality to a scene in Black Friday. Horror struck they witnessed the hypnotized actor's mortal agony as Lugosi actually experienced the terror of suffocating to death in a closet. Let me out, please! I'm suffocating! sinister hand of science dares a new and dangerous experiment. Into the body of a gentle scholar is grafted the brain of a criminal, and a new and deadly monster is born to ravage an unsuspecting world. Big shot. Yeah. Fix it up, will you? How'd you get it? The coppers shot me. It's only a scratch. How'd you get it? Well, don't ride me. It's your fault anyway. Fine. Yeah. 
We'll take six bucks. Go ahead and shoot. You want to dive 200 feet for it? Keep him covered. you to describe a movie to them, what would you say? Would you say that Guardians of the Galaxy is Star Wars meets the A-Team, or that Jurassic Park is Westworld meets the Lost World? The X meets Y pitch is a long-standing Hollywood tradition, one that's been used to sell plenty of movies that otherwise probably wouldn't have been made. But instead of starting with a script and comparing it to two movie titles for an X meets Y pitch, what if we started with two movie titles and improvised the pitch? Well, on my podcast, X Meets Y, that's exactly what we do. I'm Jonathan Inbody, and each episode, I and a guest will randomly select two movie titles, and then we have half an hour to come up with a new original movie idea that could be described as Movie X Meets Movie Y. We've done episodes like Ocean's Eleven Meets 2001 A Space Odyssey, Godzilla Meets Old Yeller, and Robocop Meets Dead Poet Society. Basically, it's a half-hour sprint through a brainstorming session, and it is a lot of fun. If any of that sounds even the slightest bit fun to you, then you should give X Meets Y a listen. It's available wherever you find your podcasts or at xmeetsy.libsyn.com. Hopefully, you'll hear my voice again very soon, but for now, enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled podcast, you lucky so-and-so. Mr. Sardonicus. What makes his name strike terror? Sardonicus? Why were you frightened? Uh, sir, you would not understand. You are young. You do not yet have daughters. Why does his wife live in abject fear? If you do not heal him, he will punish me. Surely he wouldn't beat you. His cleverness knows a more hideous torture. What strange attraction did young women have for him? What secrets are hidden behind his doors? Mr. Sardonicus. His deeds formed a fabric of nightmares. His face, the face of Sardonicus can be described only in the eyes of its beholders. Mr. Sardonicus, in spite of all his cruelties, some people will think he deserves mercy. Others will feel that no punishment could be too severe. When you come to see Mr. Sardonicus, you will receive a, a ballad like this. At a certain point in the picture, you will vote thumbs up or thumbs down. His punishment will depend on the result of your vote. This is Count. Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. 
Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I haven't really talked to this guy since Monster Bash, and I'm eager to catch up with him and talk about a movie directed by who I'm thinking is one of his favorite directors, Rod Barnett. How are you doing, sir? I am fine, and it's good to talk to you again, man. How's life been since the Bash, post-Bash? At this point, it's been... Well, by the time this goes out, about two months. Well, I've been able to recover from the month-long post-bash depression, so I'm good. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I got through. Nothing much has changed. It's uh, just trundling along, trying to keep both podcasts on uh, on track. Got some interesting stuff in the can. Got some interesting stuff coming up, and that's you know that's it. You know, work work life is boring and and drudge, but uh, that's something that I think that we all have to deal with. Well, oh well, okay, sorry. Uh, we all have to we we all have to deal with it until we no longer have to deal with it. How's that? Yeah, something like that. Something like well, <laughs> I'm still separated from my company, so we'll see. <laughs> I can't believe that's that's how they put it, but whatever. Really separated? As if there's a there's a possible reconciliation down the road. So. Okay, I need to cut in here because uh, well, you know, when a couple of monster kids get talking, even though we're supposed to be talking about one particular movie. We can't help but bring up other monster movies and just kind of go all over the place. And that does happen in this conversation. But Rod's also a friend. And when a couple of friends start talking, man, the conversation just meanders all over the place. And that happened here. And I'm going to cut out some of the conversation that Rod and I had about what's going on with my unemployment and how I got let go from, or excuse me, separated from Pacific Corp. Mostly because the unemployment situation has not been resolved, despite the fact that I've been filing for unemployment insurance for the past five weeks. It still hasn't resolved itself, and I don't know what's going on with that. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing here, but yeah, I don't know if it's going to go through, if Pacific Corps has got some other things going on. I I don't know, and I don't want to jeopardize any of that, so... I'm going to cut out some of that conversation since it's all up in the air and I'll leave some of the other jibber jabber and random meanderings in. But anyway, back to the conversation with Rod, but I've been trying to, I've been scrambling. I'm looking for work and gigs and listeners. If you're looking for somebody to edit your audio, I work cheap and fast. So just say, you know, cheap and fast is not exactly a way to advertise yourself, except in certain areas. <laughs> One thing that's been keeping me sane, though, is the monster movies and and looking back on Monster Batch and looking forward to the next one I'm going to. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Next summer, definitely going to be there for June's 2019's Monster Batch. Going to be an awesome time. I can't wait for that. You know, until then, I'll have the memories from last time when I actually got to meet you in person for the first time. Yes, and I got to realize that uh, you were way taller than I'd even envisioned. Yeah. There's something about us podcasters. They make us big. make us tall. Yeah, not me. Well... I didn't. I'm only five ten, for God's sake. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> and shrinking every day. I think I'm losing an inch like every two years. I'm pretty sure. It was awesome though to be able to check you off my podcaster bingo card and, and actually get to hang out with you and, <laughs> and spend some time with you because we'd been talking off and on online and a few times, or I guess only one other time for a podcast. Uh, but it was finally good to to meet the 
Rod Barnett. No, and, wait, wait. We've uh, you and I. I've done two episodes of uh, Monster Kid Radio before this. We did an Antonio Margheriti science fiction film, and then we did um, Mario Baba's Hercules in the Haunted World together. Oh, that's right. You were on that episode with Tom. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So yeah, it was great just to meet you and hang out and spend some time with you and play a round of the Classic Five with you live in person, which we're going to do again on this episode of MKR because we do it every single week now. Huh? Oh, ready I'm, to play the classic oh, five? I'm glad I didn't think about this beforehand. I would be all nervous. Okay, yes. <laughs> For listeners who don't know, the classic five is a card game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards, over 100 cards now, and each card has uh, this or that, which movie do you prefer, better type question. There are no wrong answers. Call it a game. Call it an icebreaker. We call it the classic five. Are you ready to play, sir? I am prepared. Right on. All right, here we go. Card number one. What is your favorite William Castle film? Oh, 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 that's been on my mind lately. See, that's a tough one because I am all excited about being able to – I'm going to limit it to just the horror films because I'm very excited. I don't, I, I'm sure you're aware that there was just released a set of uh, either six or eight of the westerns that he made in the, uh, I think, 40s or 50s. Oh, I'm not aware of that. And that's a whole area of his career that I've been curious about because I knew he had made some of the um, – like crime doctor films, some of the you know the series mystery programmers that uh, I think it was Columbia that were made back in the 40s and 50s, um, but his westerns I've never seen any. They just released a set I forget which company of about eight of them. It's probably Mill Creek. Yeah. Okay. Is it the fastest guns in the West? Eight William Castle westerns. Right. Oh, add that to the wish list. That looks awesome. But just sticking to the horror films, it's difficult, and it's it really is just a favorite thing. If I, if I had to choose, it would probably have to be the Tingler, but I have a I have a really really huge amount of love for Mr. Sardonicus, but I'll go with the Tingler. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is the Tingler, which I directed, and for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. I do think sometimes people forget that he did things outside of the genre work. That up until, what, mid-50s or so, he wasn't really doing a lot of horror stuff. No, it was the horror stuff that he decided to do when he stepped out on his own, when he kind of took the skills that he had learned. Uh, a, a filmmaker, a, an apprentice director, and, and just all-around <laughs> craftsman. And mm -hmm. um, like I say, I think it was Columbia, but I I'm, I could be easily wrong. But he he decided to step out and become his own producer, and you know, essentially make all the money himself. Pretty much, pretty much. I would recommend people go back and check out some of his uh, non-genre stuff. Uh, the Fat Man from 1951 is a lot of fun, and one of my absolute favorites is Hollywood Story, starring. Julie Adams. So go check that out if you uh, haven't. I highly recommend them. And uh, I know at one point you and I talked about me coming on one of your shows and talking about something I don't normally talk about on MKR. Yeah. Maybe some of these William Castle Westerns would be fun to do. Oh, man. That sounds like a great idea. That would be awesome. Okay, okay. I'll, t I'll tell you what. Let's let's look into that later on. That's a great idea. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that later. Off mic. Off mic. All right. Uh, card number two. Ha, ha, ha. 
I'm doing this on purpose because of how we first kind of interacted. <laughs> oh. If you could have been on set during the production of a kaiju movie, which one would it have been? Oh, 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 okay. It would be um, Destroy All Monsters. The following announcement is a special bulletin direct from American International. It may be too late. Our planet may be doomed. Armies have been alerted. The hotlines are in constant use. Civilization is in chaos. The monsters are in revolt. Now a direct report. This is Jay Webb in New York. Godzilla is laying waste to the city. The citizens have never known such fear. At the same time, Rodan is attacking Moscow. The city is alert for military action. In London, Manda is spreading horror in its path. And in the Far East, Peking trembles under the wrath of Mothra. We must destroy all monsters. Yes, destroy all monsters, or our civilization will be destroyed. Destroy all monsters is a motion picture. See for yourself. It really could happen. Destroy all monsters in color from American International is rated G for general audiences. Oh, man. Just to see them all. Yeah, just to be able to see them trying to coordinate all the different monsters, get everything together. It's really kind of the last blast of that level of creativity held held to a certain held to a certain quality level, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and there's a it's Honda, it's that creative team uh, really working their butts off. But also it would give me the chance to be on set and see why they didn't use Varan as much as I wish they had. I love Varan, man. I I am a Varan fan. I want more Varan in the world. I really do. But I've always been disappointed with with that film because uh, Varan is there. But he's always lurking in the background, and of course, the thought has always been that they didn't like build a new Varan, and that's the same. That's the like the original one from several years before, and so it wasn't really going to hold up if they put the camera too close to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all beat up with yeah. holes in the arms and everything. Yeah, don't don't know, but man, yeah, if I could be on set just to find that out, that's what I would do. Just besides the joy of watching all that stuff happen. Oh yeah, it'd be so much fun, so much fun. I'd be taking so many selfies. You can. <laughs> <laughs> Varan selfie, Gidriff selfie. Right? (laughs) Well, of course. What else would you do? Right, right? yeah. Either that or bring my recorder and just start recording everything for a future episode of MKR. All right, card number three. (laughs) (laughs) Who never appeared in a Hammer film, but you wish they had? Oh, uh, Vincent Price. Yeah. That's, Did uh, I ask you that before, the bash? No, I know this no, one came I, up a I, few I, times. I don't know that I don't. I don't remember being asked that question, but I will say that considering that his most fertile period, the period in which uh, Price was doing the the most of his of his truly classic horror films, is the, the exact same period of time that uh, Hammer was in their amazing period of, of horror filmmaking, the late 50s through the late 60s. The fact that it never happened, I mean, you know, it's just a, a matter of scheduling and a matter of the right project and a matter of, you know, everybody being busy doing what they're doing. That's just something that I wish had happened. It would have been amazing. Yeah, I mean, he was over there doing work for Amicus, just, and, and I'm sure they weren't paying any more than Hammer would have. So, yeah. Don't know. Don't know. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Would have been fun. Would have been fun. All right, card number four. What Boris Karloff role could have or should have been played by Bela Lugosi? Well, there's the obvious one, which I just talked about recently with Troy on our on the Bloody Pit, which is uh, the role that uh, Lugosi was supposed to play and Karloff ended up playing, which is in Black Friday, the 1940 oh, film. Oh man, yeah. And but, but that's <laughs> that one's kind of the obvious one because that change happened very late 
in the uh, the production process, and it really is not that the you know having gone back and rewatched the film, it 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 is a, it is a good film, and there are really great performances, but the character that Karloff plays so obviously would have been better pl- would have been better served as written if it were Lugosi. But mm-hmm. If I were to choose something else, I would actually choose. <laughs> It, it it probably wouldn't work, but it would have been fun to see Lugosi taking a stab at some of those weirder late fifties. Well, okay, my well, okay, I'll change up. Let, think think about this for a minute. Think about what would have happened if Lugosi had been around to to try something with Bava, like like Karloff <laughs> got to. <laughs> wow. Well, and of course, and then there's that part. There's that part of me. That uh, would love to have seen uh, Bella Lugosi play the part that Karloff plays in Val Luton's Isle of the Dead. It would have been nice to see Lugosi get some better Luton. It's in the forties. Yeah. It's in the forties. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Lugosi, you know, Lugosi could still have pulled off that role, and Karloff's brilliant in it. I mean, he's incredible. He really chews on that role effectively. But I think I've always thought that if um, Lugosi were put into that role, it would have been, I just don't think that anybody was going to, I don't even think anybody was even thinking down that road at the time. Yeah. I'm just trying to think about him like in black Sabbath and all. (laughs) (laughs) It's an odd thought, isn't it? It would have been awesome though. Well, think think, think about him. Think about him playing the character in the Verdelac. I mean, that's just, yeah. I mean, that's it right there, right? That's exactly where I'm going with it. With my, oh man. All right. Yeah. Card number five, final card. Rod, what is your favorite classic 3D movie? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, always going to end up probably just defaulting to House of Wax because it has a combination of the elements within a 3D movie that you look for in a 3D movie. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the depth of field is actually used to um, add some suspense. And then it also has the silly, stupid stuff like the paddle ball and all that kind of crap where it's just like, well, we're going to show off for the camera. Uh, so yeah, probably House of Wax. The thing is, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not the biggest fan of 3D of any period because it is a gimmick and because it draws attention to itself automatically. There's a distancing effect, I feel. But House of Wax has that combination of intelligent use of 3D and plain dumb. (laughs) So I kind (laughs) of like it. House of Wax is all the more amazing when you realize the guy couldn't see in 3D anyway. The guy who directed it? Yeah. Yeah, Andre de Toth. Yeah, that's true. He had one eye. He couldn't. He didn't have depth perception like that. He couldn't see it. So I know. I know. That's why you have good technicians around you. Yeah, it's just amazing to think about. Well, that's that's the classic five. How do you feel, Rod? Uh, I feel uh, that I that I made it through again. I feel, uh, if not healthy, at least uh, like a survivor. Well, listeners, if you enjoyed the Classic Five, there are decks available for sale, and we'll talk about that at the end of the episode later on. After Rod and I talk about this week's movie, part of Edgar August Poe Month, talking about a Barbara Steele film. I can't have enough Barbara Steele. She's amazing, but she's not the only person in the movie. She's not the only reason we watched it. Castle of Blood, also known as uh, Dance Macabre, right? Correct. Castle of Blood. This is the shocking drama of a young writer who disregards the warning of his master, Edgar Allan Poe, and accepts a wager to pass the night in a castle of mystery and legend. The Castle of Blood. 
no one has ever witnessed and survived the awesome secrets, the ghostly events of this castle of the damned. I've dreamed of this night. At last I can go away with the man I love. You can't leave, Elizabeth. You're trapped in this castle. Here, the dead rise from their tombs once a year to repeat their hideous crimes of murder and passion. Kiss me. On embracing me, I want to absorb the warmth of your body. For a moment, I thought that your heart had stopped. I'm dead, Alan. No! No, Herman, no! No! Every death is repeated tonight. Come. Allen Poe's most gripping, chilling drama of horror and suspense, Castle of Blood. Directed kind of sort of by two people, but not. Uh, not really, yeah. Yeah, it, it's mostly Antonio Margariti. Although, if I understand correctly, the movie started production with Sergio Corbucci, one of the three Sergios of Spaghetti Western fame. Uh, yes, uh, Corbucci, the idea was brought to him by the producers, and uh, Corbucci... Uh, either himself or probably mo- most reports are that it was definitely his brother uh, who uh, Sergio asked to start writing a script. So he and another guy wrote a script and it became evident that Corbucci was going to have to be making another film at the time this was going to go into production. And so he asked Margariti to film it. And there are reports that Corbucci may have filmed some segment of it. But I always find those kind of things when you start learning about how <laughs> – when you start learning about how these productions were and they were really just trying to get these things done, it becomes more and more likely that maybe somebody got sick one day or couldn't make it to set one day and somebody stepped in and, and did the work for that day. It's possible. This 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 feels a whole lot like a Margariti gothic, uh, even though uh, Margariti – considered his gothics the, his least favorite, uh, the least favorite of all the films that he made, which is kind of weird. Really? I, I think yeah. he – huh. Well, I mean, he was good he, at it, obviously. Yeah, he just, yeah, he just they weren't necessarily to his taste, which is kind of strange when you see how effective he was with you know between this and and Long Hair of Death and things like that. Yeah, I was gonna say this is not the only time he he dabbled in this this subgenre. He's actually pretty responsible for a lot of really cool Italian genre films, whether it's horror or science fiction. And I was gonna say he's got a really good grasp on the Gothic here. Oh, yes. And if you ever get the chance to see The Virgin of Nuremberg, which he made a little while after this, that's another where you, you see, wow, he, whether he feels that they're they're his favorite thing or not, it doesn't matter. He, he had the skill to make them well. Solid grasp on all of this. He also did some of the Sword and Sandal movies. He's credited, I believe, as doing the first Italian science fiction film, isn't he? That, that's what everybody says. It's called Spaceman. It's 1960. It's his first uh, film credited as director. Uh, I've got to be honest, it's dull. It's a little slow. I've, yeah, it's I, I have watched it since I had you on the show to talk about Wild Wild Planet because I wanted to go back and check it. It's also known as Assignment Outer Space. It's a little slow, but the movie poster is cool. 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are cool elements within the movie, but it's overall it's it's about as dull as dishwater. So. Especially compared to like Wild Wild Planet or any of those films, it's it's really slow moving, but it looks great. And again, he really seemed to get it when it came to making these genre films look amazing. He had an eye for this stuff, and even I mean. When you realize how fast he had to make almost all of these movies, he made this movie in 15 days. Wow. Yeah. That's not an exaggeration. That's not someone misremembering. Everybody knows how long this thing took to make. They didn't have a lot of time. And he employed a lot of different techniques to make sure that they could get it done as quickly as possible, including uh, having four cameras running at the same time. So that they didn't have to like restage shots. They could just shoot from four different angles and then have it in the edit, you know, in the editing bay, being able to, you know, take their time after they shot everything to get it all together properly. Oh, see, I didn't know that. That's fascinating and smart. Very oh, smart. Yeah. If you're working fast and you've got that, kind, you know, you've got the equipment and you're, you know, you're shooting wild, you don't have to worry about bothering with the sound because that's going to be done later. Mm-hmm. You can get, you can get away with murder like that. That was pretty common with a lot of Italian productions. The Spaghetti Westerns are notorious for just having the actors show up and speak whatever language they're going to speak, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever, whatever they normally speak, because we're going to fix it all on post later and dub everything in later. So yeah. That's pretty notorious. Yeah. So if you're not worried about sound, yeah, of course, have several cameras going. It doesn't matter. Yeah, because the, no- the, the, the noise on set doesn't matter. Having the director tell you to, you know, back up and take that step again and, you know, just restart and you can just keep the camera rolling and have those few seconds just edited out later on. It doesn't matter. It's a very effective. And of course it's, if you can do it, it makes it easier to complete a movie in less than three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you've got such a great location. I don't know where they shot this. Oh, I don't know if it's a set or if it's a, is it a set or is this yeah, a yeah. Sand, an actual uh, building? Cause whatever it is, it looks great. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why the film uh, looks so cool is because the sets were being reused. The, the, from what I'm told, one of the reasons why the producer wanted a script written in the first place was to be able to reuse these sets, which were from another film. Do you know what film it was? Yeah, the sets were originally built for a film called The Monk of Monza. Okay. And so uh, they had these standing sets that they, you know, taken the time and money to build. And it's just like, you know, milk another film out of them. I'm reminded of those types of stories where you, you know, you know that Roger Corman shot the film The Terror on the sets that he had built for a particular Corman Poe film. While, you know, while they were being dismantled, he just really quickly shot a bunch of stuff, figured it out later. I was going to say, it sounds very Roger Corman of him. <laughs> if it works for Corman, you know. Oh, oh yeah. Any, any, any producer will try to milk any set for as, for as much money as they can. The look of the sets, the, the castle location, everything going on inside, I think it looks gorgeous. I, I think it's very well lit and produced and shot. I don't, I don't know much about the Italian film industry outside of, oh, I really like what I've seen so far. So I don't know who did what or, or the history behind a lot of this, but whoever did the designing here, the production design – Kudos. It looks amazing. Well, the black and white cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. Yes. And uh, when you do, when you realize that they were having to take into account the fact that they were lighting it for multiple cameras, if you know anything about the filmmaking process, you now realize, oh, wow, they were really, really good because they're not bathing these sets in lights because then it would just look ridiculous. They can't do that. So they're having to worry about lighting for individual cameras because they're going to try to film these shots 
with multiple cameras all at once and then move on to the next setup. They're not going to bother with, you know, coming in for specific close-ups. They're setting up the cameras to try to get those on a single take. Mm-hmm. So That's- when you realize that they're setting the lighting for multiple cameras in a lot of these scenes, it's even more impressive because that's difficult. Now that I know that, I'm even more impressed because that's that's nuts. Oh, this yeah. This is crazy making. I don't know how he pulled it off. That's that's amazing. These are people who at that point, I mean, this was a machine. These people had been making movies, you know, week in, week out for years at this point. This, is, this was their job. This is what they did. And, you know, you learn different techniques. You see, you know, you see the finished product and go, okay, well, that didn't work nearly as well as we thought it would. So let's try it. You know, let's, let's run some tests and see what we can come up with from the, to make it look better next time. And so you get to a certain point where these people, you're working with just a lot of experience over several years, and it shows up in product like this. It's amazing. I mean, it's a well-oiled machine that pulled this off. Is this an Edgar Allan Poe story? Well, Mm, (laughs) no. (laughs) I love the credit in the English language version of the film. Based on the Edgar Allan Poe story, Dance Macabre. Uh, There is no such story. No. I I, I went looking. I don't think that title sounds – that doesn't sound right. I don't – no. There's there's no. 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 Now, I will say this. uh, It is – kind of similar in a certain way. One could say that it might have been inspired by the post story, Never Bet the Devil Your Head, which is a satiric story and a fun one. Uh, Fellini turned it into uh, the uh, the short film Toby Dammit in uh, the film Spirits of the Dead. Have you ever seen Spirits of the Dead? I have not. Oh, wow. Well, you really, you get, man, you've got, a, you've got some good viewing in front of you. Spirits of the Dead is a, an anthology film, three different stories made by three different big European filmmakers, Roger Vadim, darn, I'm forgetting the third one, and Fellini. Uh, all three stories are good. All three are based on Edgar Allan Poe stories, by the way. Okay. Actual, actual Edgar Allan Poe stories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, Tim Lucas has just written a book that's about to come out from uh, Fab Press about the film here in the next couple of months, I believe. Okay. And um, Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the Fellini segment is the one that ends the picture, and it stars uh, Terrence Stamp as the, character, as the character Toby Dammit. And that is the character's name in the original story. But they, they change the details quite a bit. They turn it into a very Fellini kind of thing because Toby Dammit is a, a, a British movie star who's brought over to Italy. Uh, he's lured over to Italy to make uh, a film in Italy. But the way they were able to, able to lure him over is they promised to pay him with an Italian sports car. The Fellini film is amazing. And the, the element from the story that you can kind of see in – Castle of Blood is the idea of essentially taking a bet or, or, or being willing to gamble ridiculously with your own life uh, in, a, in a situation in which you don't really understand what the consequences might be. Mm. And so maybe that's where they were kind of getting a, kind of getting a little bit of inspiration from. But let's be honest. We all know what the deal was. <laughs> At the time, the Roger Corman made – Uh, Edgar Allan Poe films were humongous box office worldwide, and everybody and their grandmother was slapping Edgar Allan Poe's name on everything that they could, trying to make a buck. Even Corman himself with The Haunted Palace. It's it's, it's not a Corman story at all. It's Lovecraft. But, you know, yeah, Poe was bringing in the money, and so let's slap his name on it. Now, Poe does actually turn up in this film, though. He's an actual character in the movie. 
Corman never did that. Uh, and, and, by, and in general, by the 60s, having the author show up uh, as part of his own story was not something that was done. And when it was done, it was, uh, I can think of a particular amicus horror film uh, with the story uh, with Jack Palance and um, – oh, darn it. Who's the co-star in this that amicus uh, short story called The Man Who Collected Poe? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you actually have Edgar Allan Poe as a character in the story, but that wasn't done as much. That's something that kind of is much more how uh, people who did silent adaptations would do. They would actually have a framing device in which the story's author turned up as kind of the the narrator or the person who told the story, or maybe even the person to which the story happened. But with with this particular film, it, it is very fun to pretend that okay, Edgar Allan Poe went to London. Okay, sure, and uh, <laughs> went went. went, went <laughs> Went over there and at particular random bar was recounting his, uh, his story of Berenice to kind of entertain all the all the patrons. And uh, this is how this story begins. And I will say that at least this guy, the the actor they have playing Poe, actually kind of looks a little bit like Poe with that mustache. I have to say that's not that's not too bad a likeness. No, it's not. I mean, I've seen better likenesses. Uh, I'm thinking Jeffrey Coombs, of course. But, you know, he, yeah. he does a really decent job. Uh, I mean – it works for what he's doing. It's he's played by who? Um, oh, uh, uh, Silviano Tranquilli. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay, name. Silvio Tranquilli. And that's the reason why I've got Rod here on the show, so he can pronounce all the Italian names I'm going to blow. So there we go. No, so I can mispronounce. <laughs> well, uh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, uh, Margariti remade this film uh, a few years later in color with a different cast, except for. This particular actor, the fellow who plays Edgar Allan Poe in Castle of Blood, played a different character in the remake. He plays the uh, husband, the, the the married couple that we see come into the house uh, at a certain point and then get dispatched by the ghosts. Uh, that's the character he played in the remake. And the remake is uh, Web of the Spider, is that right? Web of the Spider from 1971, yes. Which I did not get a chance to watch for this, unfortunately. I wanted to. I just ran out of time. Oh, don't worry about it, because that's what, what's great about that is that that's something we can cover some other time. Yeah, maybe next year, August Poe Month. There you go. There you go. Uh, it is something that's on my list. I do like the company that put it out. I'm, I'm a fan of what Garage House Pictures is doing, and I would love to get my hands on that blue, because I bet it looks great. Their Blu-ray, their Blu-ray of the film is just jam-packed with multiple versions of the film and extras. It's great. Yeah, no, they, they do really, really good work. And yeah, we'll, we'll come back to it at some point. I think it'd be fun to have Rod on again to talk about that down the line. Mm-hmm. But in this one, yeah, uh, we've got Edgar Allan Poe kind of opening the story. And like you said, you don't really see a lot of that. I mean, I think probably the most popular amongst monster kids is Bride of Frankenstein, where Mary Shelley is like, oh, that's not where the story ended, you know. But yeah. you, you don't see a lot of that. And in this, it's not even like he's narrating the story. He's just a character here who shows up at the beginning and the end. To kind of dare our main character. Well, he's not even the one doing the daring. He's just kind of there while the main character gets dared to spend a night on the night of the dead in this castle. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, uh, he's a journalist, Alan Foster, played by Georges something French. Riviere, okay. I think. Okay. That's my best guess at that. And I'm a little better with French names, but I still suck. So the, the, the only French I know is, <laughs> so that's, that's, yeah, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank I, you. I, thought for, I thought surely you were going to say Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> 
Uh, so but he's no, our, uh, yeah, he's our lead. He's our the man who takes the the bet to spend the night. As you can tell from the name, he's a French actor. He did a number of films. Uh, he's quite good in this, uh, and uh, he turns up he turned up in a lot of movies. I mean, The Longest Day. Uh, he did Horror Castle, which is another Gothic around the same time, another Italian Gothic at the, around the same time. Mm-hmm. Let's put it this way. Not the last time he worked in Italy. He was also in a couple of spaghetti westerns and a couple of Euro spy films. So. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, see, he, he was actually one of my favorites. I, I love the uh, Agent 3S3 Passport to Hell film. I'm a big fan of yeah. that one. And he's in I've that. seen that one. But I've yeah. seen that one, and I vaguely remember really thinking a lot of it, but I've seen so many Euro spy films between now and then. My memory has faded as to the details. Uh, sometimes they kind of blend, as do the spaghetti westerns. They just kind of start to blend a little bit. Yeah. Uh, because, like we said earlier, I mean, this was a machine. This was <laughs> the, the way they made film in Italy at this time. It was very factory-like at times. So a lot of times they just kind of, yeah, start to look alike, sound alike. But, you know, if they all look good and sound good, so be it. Uh, but he was also in Minnesota Clay, which is also another really good spaghetti western film. And that's a Sergio Corbucci film. That's actually mm-hmm. – that's an interesting one. That, that one was made – in Italy, before the big boom of spaghetti westerns, so in, right. other, in other words, before Fistful of Dollars came along and just kind of blew, you know, blew everything else out of the water, and made everybody realize what a change had happened within the industry. And so, mm-hmm. Minnesota Clay is very much uh, what you would get from Italy at the time if they made a western, which was it looks a whole lot like a 1950s Hollywood western. Good cast, a good enough little movie, but I've seen people talk about Minnesota Clay and be disappointed with it. And I was like, yeah, that's because the sea change had not occurred. We had not had Sergio Leone come along and just kind of change all the rules. So, Right. Yeah. Uh, Cameron Mitchell is the lead in that, and he's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a lot of Cameron Mitchell in your movie-watching diet, you're missing out. Talk about a guy who likes to chew the scenery, uh, but he does it in such a delightful way. It's wonderful. Oh, yeah. He's so, he's so much fun. Mm-hmm. Indeed. But, yeah, so George is our lead actor. He's our journalist who gets there to stay the night in the hotel. I'm sorry, not the hotel. Whoa. He's well, our journalist. abandoned castle. Yeah. Where was I going with that? Um, I don't know, our hotel? Yeah, I, I don't know where that came from. I need more coffee this morning, clearly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and supposedly people have been dared to stay the night here before and haven't really made it through the evening. Well, I think that's interesting in that th- that's one of the first things you'd think a journalist would ask. is like, have you done this often, sir? Are they still right. alive? Can I speak to them? <laughs> right, yeah. No, he, he takes it, and he takes it for... Uh, a very low amount of money. It feels like he kind of lowballed him a little bit. Not ten, not dollars, but whatever it is that we're using. Um, um, pounds. Pounds. Very, very little money, I would think, for something like that. But no, he takes it because he says he's a journalist, not a man of means. Uh, and he, I, and, yeah, and I, I like that detail because what Lord Blackwood initially says is, you know, would you know, would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to take this bet? For a hundred pounds, and he de- and the, the the journalist demurs because he's like, I'm I'm poor, I can't I can't put up a hundred pounds, and that's when he, you know he he suggests the the ten pound thing, and I like that detail because it shows that this is a man who's thinking it's possible I could lose this, so I need to be realistic about it. <laughs> so, and I do like that he also looks to Poe as a you're a journalist, you understand, because a lot of people when they think about Poe, you know, the they don't really think that he did anything other than. You know, Nevermore and some of these other more horror things. But yeah, he did work as a journalist. 
oh, and a critic, and mm-hmm. and it's his work as uh, it's his work as a literary critic that <laughs> made him truly hated by a lot of other writers at the time. Right. So I thought that was a neat little detail as well. I mean, we might be doing a movie saying it's supposedly based on Poe, but it's not. But at least we're going to get that one detail about Poe correct. <laughs> yes. So, so I liked that. I liked having that in there. They take him out to this castle, and you mentioned the name Blackwood. It's Blackwood Castle, and and the Blackwoods. Uh, it's Lord, Lord Thomas Blackwood is the uh, the the man who sends him to the castle. That's, that's the one. That's the one. And he spins this story about how he's got family that went there and disappeared, and and the story's a little thin. Yeah, and especially as the details start to pile up once you get inside the castle, some of the details kind of don't necessarily feel like they jive as well with what's going on outside the castle. But that's okay. Well, yeah, and I think that that's kind of okay because of, for something internal to the story because clearly Lord Blackwood wants to not necessarily give too much detail because he can't he can't just rattle it all off because then nobody would take the bet. Right, nobody would take the bet and then we wouldn't have a movie. Well, there's a yeah, well, there's definitely that. The movie would be like just, five minutes long. You want to go? No. All right. <laughs> it's like my it's like my old joke about about pacing. The movie moved at the speed of plot. So <laughs> I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that in the future. I think I like that a lot. Okay. <laughs> now, for me, one of the highlights in the film, and I think for pretty much anybody, it's going to be Barbara Steele. Oh yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, she, she, even though she doesn't show up in the beginning credits, uh, she's amazing. She, she is a, a big part of the movie, and you know, there's just something about her. I love everything that I've seen her in, and as much as I've seen her in a lot of things, I still feel like she's one of these women of mystery that I know very little about. And I think that's probably intentional. Uh, it kind of great. adds to the she, mystique. Yeah, yeah, and, and and part of it, I think, visually, the thing that. I mean, I'm far from the first to, to state this, but visually, the thing about Barbara Steele that just is unmistakable, and uh, you, there's there's no way to escape. It's just those humongous eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you can get lost in those eyes, and when uh, when she wanted to, she could mesmerize the camera, and through that camera, us. She could mesmerize people with those eyes. She has these big beautiful i mean almost anime sized eyes where you look at them and you that whole that, that whole poetic license line about you know being able to get lost in someone's eyes man this is an actress who had that capability yeah amazing eyes with such depth and man i i yeah i can totally just get <laughs> just stuck looking at her and i don't know have you ever had a chance to meet her at like a convention or anything no i've never had the opportunity I had always heard that she was difficult, uh, but when I had a chance to meet her at the Lovecraft Film Festival here, was it last year? She was so sweet. She was so warm and so willing to just meet with fans and talk about things. And even a movie that I personally really liked that she might not have, like The Curse of the Crimson Altar, she yeah. didn't really trash it. I mean, she was as complimentary as she needed to be, um, but just very nice and pleasant to deal with. And that was so just wonderful to spend time with her. And, well, the thing is, I yeah. mean, over the over the decades, I think that she came to terms. I mean, I think she spent a lot of time feeling that she kind of 
cut her own career's throat by being in so many of these cheap gothics as she thought the thought you know these cheap horror films which is mm-hmm. how she thought of them for a very long period of time and i think it took a long time for her to have success in different ways to be able to look at that part of her career with something other than uh, bitterness or or a sense of regret mm-hmm. and it's good that she, you know, she has, of course, over the past twenty some odd years, she's obviously come to the point where she's very happy to talk about that period. And she looks back on it, and she, you know, she'll be honest about it, which is exactly what you want. But the way she views it now is, I think, colored by the fact that that's the part of her career that everyone remembers her for, and it's the work that she did within those that brings her so much attention these days. And that I think that happens with a lot of actors and actresses and filmmakers in general, where they are suddenly stunned in later, later life to learn, wow, this is what you guys love. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Really? This was two (laughs) months out of my entire life. Are you sure this is what you like a lot? (laughs) Well, I, and the thing is, I mean, to be blunt, I mean, she not not every one of these movies she was in was particularly fantastic, and she would have reason to be angry at some of them. I mean, or to be angry to talk about them anymore. I mean, as much as I love the She Beast, the oh uh, yeah, I love that film too. I love that movie a lot. I also know what what happened to her making that movie, which was that they paid they 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 had her for one day, mm-hmm. one. Day. Everything you see her do in that movie was shot in a single day. And by day, I mean 24-hour period. So the producer paid her for one day and kept her for the whole 24 hours shooting the whole time to get the most out of his money. And so I can understand if you brought up the She-Beast, she might still want to strangle that producer and the director probably too. I love that movie though. So. You know, oh, I even, love the movie too. even for a movie, and that was a Michael Reeves production, and Michael Reeves had issues uh, of yeah. his own. But made three great films. He made, made really three effective, chilling movies. And I love She Beast. I love it a lot. I've had a chance to introduce it here locally and present it there. I've got it on Blu ray now, and it looks beautiful. So even in a movie that she may not have had the best time making, she still brings her a game to the role whether she meant to or not i don't think she could not deliver a solid performance i mean she talks about curse of the crimson altar about how she was wasted in that movie and you know she kind of was but every time she's on screen you can't help but watch her and just are riveted by her well that's that's true anytime she's on screen in any of her pictures i mean i'll never forget being utterly shocked re-watching piranha uh years (laughs) after the fact and realizing holy crap that's barbara Steele. Uh, you know, because because the first time I ever saw Piranha, I didn't know who Barbara Steele was, right? Because you know, I had not been introduced to the Gothic films, and then I saw several of them, and then rewatched Piranha and went, "Oh my God, that's Barbara Steele!" And you've got to know at that point the reason that Joe Dante, you know, one of his first films is like going out of his way to get Barbara Steele in the movie. He's like, oh, "This is my chance to talk to Barbara Steele about all those movies she's made in the '60s." So. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's exactly what it was. <laughs> oh man she's amazing like that she's just a great person to speak with at a convention um just phenomenal and in this film she actually displays something that i'm not usually used to associating with her there's some vulnerability here when she turns up in something like black sabbath or something like that um i'm sorry not black sabbath Oh, Black Sunday. The other one. I always get the titles mixed up. Black Black Sunday, Mask of Satan. Yeah. Yeah, When she's in Black Sunday, yeah, maybe at the beginning she's had a little bit of vulnerability, but she's she's the villain, you know, or kind of sort of the villain. She's very 
I don't know, solid. She gets to kind of play both sides of the coin a little bit in that movie. A little bit. But in this film, I feel like there's some vulnerability that I'm not used to seeing her with, which I really respect and appreciated and makes me love her acting even more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she pulls off scared and, and I believed it, but that's not the only she. Did. I mean, she's got nice range in this film. She gets to do a lot in this movie. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm making much sense. I'm just kind of babbling about how much I love Barbara Steele. <laughs> well, I do have a, I do have a good question for you. Not to, not to kind of throw the classic five back in your face. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's fine. Which, if you had to choose of our gothics, which, which of the gothics that she made is actually your favorite? Man, I keep going back to this one, but of course, Black Sunday's amazing. Not since Dracula stalked the earth. Has the world known so terrifying a day or night? It's I who renounce you, and in the name of Satan, I place a curse upon you. Black Sunday is like no motion picture you've ever seen. who believe and those who do not but both must know the suspense the shock of meeting the living dead and of bringing the dead to life look into my eyes embrace me you will die but I can bring you pleasures mortals cannot know Black Sunday, the most terrifying motion picture you'll ever see. Satan wearing strange robes and fighting with all the furies of Hades arouses the countryside to a frenzy of black terror. default to Black Sunday to a large degree. Yeah. So may, and honestly, maybe everybody would. So maybe the better question is, what's number two? <laughs> <laughs> I do like Long Hair of Death quite a bit. Oh, yeah, it's great. And I also really like The Ghost. The Ghost will carry you to the depths of Hell's Horror. They played with the burning fires of illicit passions while he dallied with the devil himself. Be quick, be quick, give me the antidote. Please, Charles. Is he alive or dead? Is he a corpse or the ghost? From beyond the veil he speaks and rides unseen to mark this house with the black sign of death. 
the terror of fear. Stop it! Stop it! Shut up! And the frenzy of limitlessly indulging their lusts until the ghost turned their love into the violence of avaricious hate. That's kind of my my secret little love there is the ghost, yeah. Okay. In the last few years, I'll admit, having finally gotten to see An Angel for Satan, um, the uh, 1966 film, that one wasn't easy to see for a very long time and then got put out on uh, DVD a few years ago. Now that I've seen that, I really kind of like that. That might be my, like my, you know, we're just talking favorites here. Yeah, yeah. So that, that might be my second or third, maybe just the third. I really kind of like An, An Angel for Satan. Maybe because it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But she's great in it. She gets to play two roles. Yeah. No, I, I do like The Ghost quite a bit. It's a Ricardo Frito film, which another director, I, I everything that I've seen by him, I enjoy, but somebody I know very little about. The, the more you dig into his films, I mean, once you see something like The Awful Dr. Hitchcock, uh, I'm sorry, Awful Dr. Hickok, you realize, oh, so he liked to dabble into some very, very, very uh, controversial subjects, if you pay attention. Yeah. Uh, but Freda's a an interesting director to 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 delve into because there's a lot of stuff there, and he worked across a bunch of different genres. And when he was on, he was just he was really kind of amazing to watch. Uh, the, some of the stuff that he did, he co-directed Evampire uh, mm-hmm. with Bava mm-hmm. in the late '50s, which is kind of considered the first. Uh, Italian horror film of the period and then uh, went on to make some really interesting well he, he made his giallo which everybody seems to hate in the early 70s but everything else I've ever seen with his name attached to it I've enjoyed to one degree or another I mean he does solid work he does solid work uh, just again somebody that I don't know anything about and going back to Barbara Steele, I am currently working on my journey through the original Dark Shadows. And as soon as I'm done uh, with the original run, I'm going to go and watch the run from the 90s. And I'm really eager to see what she does in that. I know uh, Dominique, who was on the show that we did the uh, the Hercules in the Haunted World with, with yeah, she loves her in the 90s Dark Shadows. So I'm really excited to check her out in that. I've always been curious about the 90s Dark Shadows. I've never watched a whole lot of Dark Shadows. I've enjoyed what, I, what I've seen, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that um, I have to say it doesn't uh, paint me in a, in, a, in a kind light, but there's a part of me that wants to see that 90s version because at least there's a certain amount of it and I could get my way through it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't take, you know, a years long project and wandering my way through, you know, like five episodes a week. It's like, ah, oh, man, there's only a limited number of these. I could, I think I could work my way through that nineties version really quickly. Plus Barbara Steele. Yeah. Barbara Steele's in it from the very beginning, uh, which her character does not show up in the original dark shadows until much later on. Um, because in the original dark shadows, Barnabas isn't even part of it for a long time. So you don't have any of that. You, you barely have supernatural stuff happening during the first three or four discs in that box set. So. It was so funny. The, the first time I dipped into Dark Shadows, was this was years and years ago, mm-hmm. um, I just started randomly watching a few episodes, and there's no Barnabas Collins, and it's it's very much a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde storyline, and I'm like, well, this is kind of interesting, but where are the vampires? What, <laughs> what, what, what am I watching? And, oh, this is still Dark Shadows. Okay, what's happening here? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm digging it. I'm enjoying my, my walk through it. I, I hope that by the time December rolls around, I will at least have the original series done. 
uh, because December is uh, Dan Simber here on Monster Kid Radio doing a lot of Dan Curtis stuff. So, oh, a lot of good stuff there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We are way off track, but Barbara Steele, well, she's well, awesome. Wait, wait. <laughs> but but with Barbara Steele and and Dan Curtis, you do know that you know Barbara became uh, a a miniseries producer in the eighties, and she and Dan Curtis share an Emmy for the production of uh, War and Remembrance, the uh, sequel. She also produced uh, what is it, The Winds of War, the the sequel miniseries. War and Remembrance. She and Dan Curtis share an Emmy for that thing. I had no idea. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I say that I think that you know it's her it's her huge success later in her career that I think may have made it easier for her to not be quite so bitter about what she may have seen as you know career missteps early on. Very, very cool. You know, I'm looking at this is the best podcasting ever when somebody just kind of rattles off what they're reading off the IMDb. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't I didn't know anything about her production, but I'm looking up her production credits right now. And wow. Oh, yeah. Including being an associate producer on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. So right on. Correct. <laughs> Barbara knows what she's doing. Good for her. Hey, anything, anything positive for Barbara is good as far as I'm concerned. Well, and she's kind of the last of the, the legends that we still have around, you know. Uh, she might not be from the golden age, but from the silver age, I guess you could say, of classic genre cinema, she's still here. And, and a lot of them we don't have anymore. So Yeah, sad but true. You know, you know we, we still have her. And she's still doing stuff. She still turns up in things here and there. She was a voice in a very cool short film that I saw at a Lovecraft Film Festival a few years back, uh, The Mill at Calder's End. She's great in that. So good in that. Uh, and it's just her voice. It, it's a, a puppet film. It's all puppets and marionettes doing stuff. But she is just wonderful in that. Uh, just, just hearing her voice gives it so much more creepy credence. So it's really cool. Nice. So anyway, so welcome to the Barbara Steele Podcast. Thank you for listening <laughs> to me and Rod Gush about somebody that we probably secretly have a little bit of a crush on. No, you um, think? <laughs> are, are we being a little obvious about it? Just don't tell Julie Adams, okay? And I'm okay. Yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> so back to the movie. Barbara Steele is stuck in the castle. Uh, yes, yes. Well, we have our main character meeting Barbara Steele first, because that's where that's where you want to start. Because <laughs> everything's downhill from there. Well, that's what keeps him in the house, right? That keeps him in the castle. Exactly. If I had met, say, like Doctor Carmus first, I'd probably yeah, okay, yeah, and, uh, yeah. You're a weirdo. Yeah, Doctor Carmus <laughs> is maybe the most interesting character in the film, but at the same time, yeah, if you meet him first, maybe you still leave. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, especially after especially yeah. after he kills that snake, but. Oh, God. I'd seen this movie before, but warning listeners, they kill a snake on screen. It's And it's real, and it sucks. Um, I'm an animal lover, and, and I, just, it, I cringe, man. It is real, and uh, it's obvious that it's real. I mean, it, it's the point of the scene. The point of what he's doing is to kill the snake, and it's the point of the dialogue. It's the, it's the reason the scene is written the way it is. That doesn't make it good. That doesn't make it a positive thing. But I will warn people, and this is something that um, you know, my friend John Hudson and I are, have been for the past few years going through, uh, haphazardly going through uh, Antonio Margariti's films. And boy, did we realize that we'd stepped into it when uh, we ran across multiple instances across his entire career of real animals being killed on screen. Now – yeah, you can say exactly what I'm sure a lot of people are thinking right now, which is, hey, nobody thought about this kind of stuff back then. And 
to a degree, you're right. I mean, we are talking about snakes. We're not talking about somebody like, you know, killing a horse on screen or something stupid like that. Um, these are, you know, spiders and insects and, and, and in this case, a snake. It's still one of those things that as you move into the 21st century, you're glad we no longer do. And you have to, ex- you, mm-hmm. you have to accept it. Unfortunately, you know, you have to accept it as a part of this is the way things were done. And uh, it is unpleasant, but it is a good idea to kind of warn people that that exists. It's not like some of the the cannibal films shot in the 70s where, you know, they kill monkeys on screen or something ridiculous like that. Or you, you, watch, a, you watch a snake swallow, uh, you know, some kind of weasel or something. That's not what we're talking about. But it is still there and forewarned is forearmed. It is, I think, to kind of gloss over it kind of sort of does disservice to the history. And, you know, it, it happened and it continued to happen up through the 80s. Even here in the States, on Friday the 13th, they kill a snake on screen. I mean, it it's something that happens, and it's unfortunate, and boy, I'm so glad they don't do it anymore if they can help it, if they're on the up and up. What is interesting that I found about this is that uh, the director of Cannibal Holocaust was an assistant director on this film. Oh, yeah. Ruggiero Diodato, yeah. And he, th- that film is notorious for all the on-screen stuff they did. It was like, there's like a turtle yep. and, and some other terrible, terrible things that happened. Well, Adrian Smith and I covered um, Cannibal Holocaust on the Bloody Pit a couple of years ago. And that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why we wanted to cover it was just to to kind of dive into the whole idea of talking about, you know, on-screen animal cruelty. And the only, you know, the, the, the best defense that can be made is actually made when you talk about Cannibal Holocaust, which is the animals that were killed on there were killed for food. You're not watching someone, you know, murder an animal just to get it on screen. These people, you know, you see them kill and eat the animal. They kill it and cook it, and then that's, you know, part of the story. But still. It's still hard to watch. I don't necessarily. Yeah, yeah I don't want to necessarily see it. Yeah, so. it's, I mean, and I mean, I'm a vegetarian, man. I don't care. I, I don't want to see <laughs> Are there some leaves you can eat, man? Well, Come on. <laughs> I'm I'm not a vegetarian, and I still don't want to see it. Yeah. So maybe maybe that makes me you know a bit of a hypocrite, but at the same time, you know, I've been you know I I grew up pretty close to my grandparents' farm, so I've seen some of this stuff up close and personal, and so I don't find it entertaining. I find it part of how we live, and not necessarily a pleasant part of it. And so doesn't need to be part of my horror movie necessarily right yeah i mean we kind of watch these movies for a little bit of escapism and it's kind of hard when you know that well something didn't escape the film you know and it's tough the the snake killing sequence it it is a part of the story i mean they they do work it in there it's not just hey let's kill a snake you know like like say on friday the 13th but there's actually a little bit of story woven around what's going on and why he's doing it. Unfortunately, that means we keep cutting back to the snake corpse or throughout the entire sequence, but it it, it is part of the story, kind of. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, my suspicion, well, man, should I should I throw salt on this wound? Uh, my suspicion is that, of course, the, the, the reason giving, given in the dialogue and the reason that the, the, the character is doing this is to illustrate what he considers to be a scientific principle, which we all know to be total BS, uh, because we're not living in the, <laughs> the mid-1850s or the mid-1800s you know mid when the story takes place. So we know that what the, 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 the quote-unquote scientific theory he's putting forth is total BS, but it is part of that period it is you know something that someone would put forth as a reasonable scientific theory at the time which makes it you know interesting and fun but at the same time when they're cutting back to the snake and it's writhing around my suspicion by the way is that that thing it's laying on is being electrified to get that thing to move oh man so sorry about the salt in the wound there you're probably right though 
You're probably right. Yeah, I'm probably right, and that doesn't make it any better. So. No, it's it's awful. I I think warning people ahead of time if you haven't seen the movie, just know that it's coming. The movie is so much more than that. It really is. There's some really cool stuff happening here. I mean, this is a great haunted house story. One of the best of the period, in my opinion. I yeah. think it works so well. And they claim that it's an Edgar Allan Poe film, and, and it's really not a, a real real-life analog story that he wrote that feels like this. But I feel like there are some things in this story that could have been Poe. They're kind of Poe-like. Oh, very much. I mean, they're obviously going for something that would fit very easily within what you might refer to as that kind of, quote-unquote, Poe literary feel. Maybe it, I would keep myself from saying genre, but I mean, the tone is very similar to the tone that you would you would feel when reading one of Poe's creepier stories. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how in-depth we want to get with it, because I, I know we kind of spoiled the whole thing with the snake, but I feel like this is something people need to see, just because Barbara Steele's amazing in it. It is a haunted house story. Alan Foster is challenged to spend the night in this dark and creepy castle where a lot of people have died over the years and alan foster gets to see it all that's the, the most amazing thing about this is that what we get to see is what he gets to see which is all of these murders that have happened in here uh the initial murders and then the murders that happen after the fact played out in front of him with him unable to do anything or to even act to do anything and uh what what's great about that is it, it's possible to go all meta because we are as the audience essentially that main character uh the the journalist who's viewing all this stuff but unable to do it to do anything about it so he's very much us watching a film unable to alter what happens on screen. And so it's really kind of neat the way that that plays very effectively. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, you can go meta with that. Sure. I mean, what happens to Alan at the end of the movie doesn't necessarily happen to the audience. Thankfully. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that's a really good point. I mean, we're, we are on this ride to, to watch this story unfold. I would love to walk into one of my favorite movies and actually have it ex happen around me as an experience. I mean, that'd be okay. Maybe not all the movies that I enjoy maybe watching. When I have, yeah, maybe not all, but I wouldn't mind, you know, hanging out with Julie Adams on the Rita. I mean, that'd be kind of cool. You know, I'd be, Hey, you, know. you would, you would at least be able to answer one question that I think has lurked in the minds of all of us for decades. Now, what exactly did the Gill man smell like? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm not, the, I'm not the first, surely. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to watch that movie again without thinking about that now. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, didn't nah, mean to, it, didn't mean it's to all taint good. everything. Nah, nah, it's impossible to taint a Julie Adams movie. Come on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's this kind of neat, spooky VR experience that Alan Foster is having throughout yeah. this whole thing. And it's not just he gets to see it. Uh, he did get to actually interact and have quite the interaction with Elizabeth Blackwood, Barbara Steele's character, uh, when he first gets there. And before things start to go south for him, I suppose, uh, things start to look really cool. In, in that respect, I mean, uh, let's, let's bring up one of my favorite moments in the film, which is how, and don't get me wrong, maybe this would happen to us as well, but he's instantaneously in love with <laughs> the character that Barbara Steele plays, which, hey, it's Barbara Steele, I get it, but... The way it's the way it's played in the film really does feel like a gigantic leap when both of them instantaneously professing their enduring love for each other. And they've known each other, I think, 10 minutes. So 
I can see it with Elizabeth knowing what her story is. And who knows how long she's been kind of in this house and alone without having a flesh and blood man with her. So, I mean, maybe she's a little damaged. I get that. But Alan's like, yeah, let's hop into bed. Well, okay. The, the hop into bed part, but he's expressing, you know, the desire to be with her forever Yeah. after having known her for less than half an hour. And I'm thinking, dude, can we like figure out what, you know, what restaurants do you like? And yeah. What's your favorite movie? You know, come what's, on. What's the last book you read? Let's talk. <laughs> what's your middle name? You know, it'd be nice to know that. Yeah, 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 your middle name. <laughs> oh, 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 how do you like the little thing that they do with the names in this? Uh, it's Lord Thomas Blackwood, but that we find out in, in one of these dialogue sequences with these with these flashbacks and the ghosts that they change the name from Black Blood to Blackwood. Which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, a little on the nose, but kind of cool. Well, I mean, first of all, you'd know why the family would have wanted to change the name. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you also wonder where did that name come from? <laughs> Black, like I don't. Why? Yeah, I do like it though. I do like, oh, it. I like, I like it. There are a lot of little touches in this movie that I really enjoy. I mean, this movie's just filled with with a, a real neat sense of gothic. Uh, little bits here and there to just kind of make you think a little bit. Yeah, there's some leaps in logic. I, I suppose character logic. You know, he's like, I want to be with you forever. And and then when he realizes or when she tells him that she's dead, he doesn't seem to react as big as I would. At that point, I think it's interesting. It's that amazing scene that is, of course, you know, within the context of the film is meant to be a postcoital scene. I mean, these people we've we've cut away and we've we've watched some other stuff and we come back and it's clear that these two people have made love and are this they're they're laying there in bed together and he puts his head on her chest and realizes I can't hear your heartbeat and that's when she tells him that she's actually dead um maybe at that point you kind of roll along I don't know it's a neat sequence though I mean it's it's a neat way to reveal yeah to Alan and to the audience what's happening there Although you've been, to, it's been really hard to not suspect it from Jump Street because she's, she's so all, all of her dialogue, all the the, the kind of covert way, or the, well, she's just kind of not really directly answered questions that he's proposed directly to her throughout you know throughout the entire period they've been talking together, and it's just like I think I know what's going on here, and then you know you're you're told outright, and after being told outright is when. Everything goes crazy and you start to, you know, be a witness to the way in which all these characters were killed. It's good stuff. I really enjoy the movie a lot. And I was glad to revisit it and I was excited when you were on board with it because I knew it was, you know, Margariti and I know that you like Margariti quite a bit. I, I know it's a little outside the box when you think about Poe adaptations because it's not an adaptation at all, really. But you know, it's got that Poe connection. It's got a good Poe feel. Mm -hmm. I like the music quite a bit. I'm a film score junkie, and I think people are getting tired of me saying that. But I love my film scores. And uh, Ortolani, is it Ritz or Riz, Riz Ortolani? Riz, uh, Riz Ortolani is the way I see it most time. But I think in the English in the English credits, they put a T in there. Yeah, which is odd. I've never seen it into that way except for this film. But I'm familiar with his work from all the spaghetti westerns that he did. And I think he did a lot of Giallo stuff in the 70s too, didn't he? Yeah, he did a lot of great work for decades. He's one of those guys who, as soon as I see his name in the credits, I know, well, I'm at least going to enjoy the music. And I really hope it was released on CD somewhere. 
<laughs> which this score has been released on CD, and I do have it. Yeah, it, it I has do, been. I, yeah, and it's it's good stuff. I mean, this movie is, except for that one bit, I can watch this movie over and over again. I will say this: I do have a question, and it's not something I'm gonna I'm gonna have to embarrass myself and point out. The question I'm about to ask you, Derek, is not one that occurred to me when rewatching this film. Now, understand, I've watched this movie seven, eight, nine times over the course of my life. It's an, it's okay. a film I enjoy. I've watched it uh, from the, uh, the old Synapse DVD several times. The The version I watched this time is the, the version that's available on that Severin uh, Blu-ray where it's there is an extra with um, um, uh, a couple of other Barbara Steele films. So right. I've watched this movie a lot of times, and I'm going to <laughs> kind of embarrass myself a bit here and point out that I, I've th- I've done some thinking about this. I watched it this time with my girlfriend, my dear, sweet girlfriend. And at the end of the movie, we we're talking about it. And the next day, we were talking a little bit about the movie. And she said, um, we see how everyone in the movie was killed, how they were originally murdered in the movie. And I go, yeah, yeah, that's part of the point of, the, of, of what we watch. And she says, we never see how Barbara Steele's character was originally murdered. I said, no, no, no. She, we see her get stabbed. He, she says, we see her get stabbed, but that's with the main character who we know is alive there in the room with her in the bed. That's not how she was killed originally. That's what's going on right then. And I, I wanted to fight against what she's saying. I wanted to, to hold up my hand and go, point of order. But honestly... <laughs> I think she may be right. I think the movie never actually shows us. I think they're trying to get across the idea that she was probably stabbed to death. But the way it's shown to us in the movie is not the way all the other murders are shown to us in the movie because the main character isn't viewing this and not able to participate. He's right there when it happens. I hadn't really thought about that. But when you do go back and and look at the film and you see how everybody else gets killed in the movie and, and why they're stuck in the house and everything that's going on there. You're right. Now I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong. In other words, I'm willing for my girlfriend to be wrong, but sadly, <laughs> sadly in instances of this type, she rarely is proven wrong because she's looking at it with totally different eyes than I am. I'm getting, this is one of those instances where I know I'm being swept up in the story and I'm just being carted along by the atmosphere. And she's going, we never saw her death. (laughs) No, no, no. She was stabbed. And she's like, no, 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 no. That is when the ghosts enter and he's there in the bed with her. That's not how she was originally killed. It can't be. He's in the bed with her. Hmm. Logical people kill me. <laughs> Guess I'm going to have to go back and watch the movie again. Yeah, yeah I'm going to go back and rewatch it myself. Maybe this time I'll watch the French version with the nudity in it. Uh, you mentioned how it's uh, it's been released a few times over the years. Uh, the last time that I watched it and the version that I watched today was it's listed as a, a special feature or it's part of a special feature on the uh, is it Nightmare Castle. Yes. Is that the Blu-ray release that it's part of that you can get that way? Yeah, they put they put um, Castle of Blood on as an extra, and they put Terror Creatures from Beyond the Grave on as an extra as well. There are other extras on the disc, too. By the way, that's a good little Blu-ray to have. Oh, it's great. It's it's packed. I know everything's streaming these days, and everybody's talking streaming and physical media is dead, but you put nah. you get some good special features on these things, and I'm all in, man. And that's a, a really good set to have, a really good uh, Blu-ray, because you've got some great films in there. Oh, certainly. I mean, Nightmare Castles is, fun, is a lot of fun, too. 
So I, I mean, I'm the first to I'm the first to turn up my nose and start laughing when people start talking about physical media is dead. But I think the phrase physical media is dead has become kind of the the joking line that people who collect physical media say every time every day just to chuckle. So right, it's like, come on, you really you think so? I mean, hey, today just today I I read. Uh, uh, okay, well, over the past few months I've been going back through and and watching some uh, obscure Robin Hood films that I've just never caught up with. And uh, uh-huh. there's, of course, the the Hammer one that has Peter Cushing as the villain in it. Richard Green, oh, it's yeah, a- Richard Green plays Robin Hood and Peter Cushing is the villain. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's the best of the Hammer Robin Hood films. It's not a great Robin Hood film, but it's pretty good. I enjoy the heck out of it. Uh, I read today that apparently it's coming out on Blu-ray in October. Really? Physical media is not dead. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I know a few years ago, back when I was doing the zombie thing, it was released on DVD with like three other Robin Hood films as part of like a series. Yep. Blu-ray in uh, October. Wow. Yeah, no, he plays, uh, Cushing plays the sheriff of Nottingham in that. And, and he's great. He's so, oh, he's wonderful. We, we talked about that on 1951 Downplays a few years back, and that was, mm. That's probably my favorite. I think the weakest part of that film is Robin Hood himself. Yeah, <laughs> Richard Green. Fantastic. I mean, I know why they cast Richard Green. He had played Robin Hood in the in the British produced TV series for years. But at the point they made it, it's like they honestly should have gone with someone younger. They should have gone with someone, you know, to be blunt, with a bit more energy. And so it, it yeah. is one of those weird movies where the title character, the hero character, is actually the least interesting character on screen. And that's not odd necessarily or – out of the ordinary, really, for the villains to be more interesting than the hero. But in this case, it's like it's a bit of a detriment to the film. So it might squeak into my top five Robin Hood films of all time, but it would squeak. It would right. it would really be a squeaker. But um, the reason is the villains. Yeah, it's uh, the way I've always looked at it or kind of put it is that I don't feel like he's earned his place as Robin Hood in that film, that everybody else is you know working and, and doing some great work and he's just kind of there. I agree. Just kind of going through the motions and it's unfortunate, but, uh, but the movie's great. Uh, <laughs> again, all over the map here, but solid, I say, solid. I just, I just, der- I just derailed us so pathetically. I'm sorry about that. Oh no, that's great. I'm excited to know that it's coming out on Blu-ray. I'm, I'm sure it'll have some great features. I hope it has some great spe- special features. Please, on Please, please, please. Um, do we know who's putting it out? Uh, you know, I think it's twilight time. So that could go either way. Then. Uh, I'm ho- I'm I'm thinking uh, if they seem to if they've struck a deal to do a Hammer movie, I'm I'm thinking they probably are going to have some extras, even if they're just importing them from someone else. I don't know, but Twilight Time. I mean, I've got a lot of Twilight Time discs packed with extras, so fingers crossed. So. I don't know how much of the conversation Rod and I just had here as our sidetrack is going to actually end up in the final episode, but I do want to go ahead and start wrapping up by letting people know that. Again, this movie is something that I highly recommend, despite some of the issues uh, or the one issue regarding the snake. And when the snake shows up, it's just one scene. They don't go back to it over and over and over again. They just cut back to it over and over again during that one scene. Uh, Pay more attention to the performers in the scene, specifically, uh, did we even say the actor's name? Did we say the actor's name, the guy who plays the doctor? Oh, I I don't think we did. Uh, His name is uh, Arturo Dominici. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's correct. <laughs> I'm like 85% positive that that's accurate. He's an Italian actor, and he did a lot of uh, – he was a, he was primarily known as a dubbing artist, but he was in a number of films. I mean he was in uh, the 57 – you know, the big famous Hercules film from 57. He was in Black mm-hmm. Sunday. 
he was in a, he was actually in Hercules versus Moloch and Hercules and the Mass Rider. So he's he's an actor who uh, you may have seen in different places, but this is the role. Once you see him in this role as as Doctor Camus, uh, you never forget him. He's he's really good in this, and not just because he kills a snake, uh, because he's 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 really creepy, and he really does get across. His character has kind of got a lot of the weight of the exposition of the film on his shoulders. And it's mm-hmm. and he and he does a fantastic job with it. I really I like the character because he's someone who was drawn to this place to try to figure it out, and then never left. He's more the narrator of the film than Poe ever would be or could be. Uh, I mean, he's the one that kind of takes Alan through his paces and and guides him through this really cool haunted castle VR experience that he's having. Yeah, and then tries to demonstrate some absurd science. But you know, along the way, it, it's still fun and. I mean, he, he really inhabits that role really well. He's probably my second or third favorite character in the movie. I mean, Barbara Steele, of course, is my number one because, of course, you know, it's Barbara Steele. But he's really a lot of fun, too. Uh, it's fun to kind of watch. And the way he watches what's unfolding around him while Alan is kind of freaking out when somebody comes in and gets killed or strangled. And Dr. Carmos is just stoically watching. Like, yeah, I've seen this before. Well, this, he's also the story's not for me this time. Yeah, you know, and um, you know, to to loop back to the Barbara Steele eye thing, some of the more interesting moments with uh, this particular actor is watching his eyes as he's imparting this information, mm-hmm. and uh, he's he's really he's really giving he's really giving the other actor in the scene everything the guy needs to react to. He's 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 really good with his eyes, and even in those scenes where later on you realize they're kind of doing some some makeup to his face to make him look a bit cadaverous that just enhances what he's doing with his eyes i think it's great yeah it's it's solid work and you know he did a lot including some spaghetti westerns and uh you know not to sidetrack but spaghetti westerns that's my jam man i love them absolutely love them well you know they only made you know five or six hundred of them so yeah plenty for me to watch and enjoy and they all have awesome titles including one that he was in called god will forgive my pistol so, <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I mean, uh, right now, uh, in the, on the Margariti strain of podcasts we're doing for the bloody pit, we're in the middle of doing two of his spaghetti Westerns. We just did vengeance, Ooh, which is, uh, yeah. 1968, which is a, which is a hell of a little movie. Yeah. Um, if the rest of the movie stank, the opening sequence is something that everybody needs to see because it, people think it's super violent, but then you watch it. With a, with a detailed eye and you realize, no, they're just fooling your eye very effectively in what happens in that scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Vengeance, which is really good, and then uh, John Hudson, who's been, who's been my partner on that string of podcasts, that really, really wanted to do the one, the, the Spaghetti Western he did right after that called uh, And God Said to Cain because it stars Klaus Kinski. He's like, a, it's a starring role. It's not the, the uh, hire Klaus Kinski, Kinski for a couple of days to, to add his name to the marquee kind of thing. He's actually the star of And God Said to Cain, and it's a really good film. And both of these Westerns, uh, Vengeance and uh, And God Said to Cain, have some really interesting gothic trappings. Right. Yeah. And Vengeance has a little bit, uh, especially when you start talking about the villain and the villain's lair. <laughs> Yeah, and that that sulfur mine, but and God said to Cain is dripping with gothic atmosphere. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I love about some of these spaghetti westerns. Is you start if you really start to look at them, get past the fact that oh, it's just another western. I mean, well, first of all, they're typically not. But when you watch them, you can start to see 
some of these gothic influences coming in is because what Italy, Italy was good at the gothic, man, whether it was a spaghetti western or giallo or a horror movie. I mean, it's right there. You even see it in the first Sartana film, and that awesome Sartana box set is also on my wish list because, man, it's it's so good. Oh, yeah. I've got to get that Sartana set. Oh, yeah. me too. And again, I love the titles, and I think I've said this before. My favorite title for a spaghetti western, God Made Them, I Kill Them. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else we want to talk about Castle of Blood? <laughs> uh, no, uh, Castle of Blood uh, is it's it's a very entertaining film. Uh, there are multiple ways to see it out there, and I think that it's. I'm, I didn't check the streaming services to see if it was possible to watch it that way, but it may very well be. Uh, it's known under uh, either the title Dance Macabre or Castle of Blood. There are a couple of other titles it might be known under, but just look for Barbara Steele movies with blood in the title, and that will narrow it down just a little. Just a little. Uh, well worth your time. It's a, it's a neat. It's it's a good gothic. Uh, it's got a lot of great atmosphere. Margariti does a lot with with uh, just atmosphere and just these uh, really nice intricate sets built for another movie and uh, it's worth your time if you like this kind of movie this is a really fine example of it it's solid performances all the way through uh, the way the uh, the lead character kind of gets it at the end spoiler he gets it at the end is yeah. interesting and, and how the <laughs> Okay, I am going to spoil because when they okay, come, right. they, they come back to the castle to pick him up. Poe and Blackwood, they show up to to pick him up because you know he, the the dare was to spend the night there, and they find his body, and they just kind of leave the body there. But Blackwood makes it a point to make sure he reaches into his jacket to take the money because a wager's a wager. It's like, <laughs> like come on. Well, that's what I love about that is like if you had if you had any doubt as the story unfolded inside that castle who the real villain of the piece was, <laughs> that final scene put you know puts puts paid to the, any doubt you may have. Lord Blackwood is the villain. Yeah. He keeps sending people to this on that night. That night every year. The night of the dead. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's just evil, man. <laughs> So it's good stuff. Highly recommended. And if you get that Nightmare Castle Blu-ray, you get two other really cool movies along with it. There is a, a short featurette about this movie on that Blu-ray set, but I haven't had a chance to watch that yet. It's a good one. It, it, it adds some uh, some information and some background about the movie. It's cool. Right on. Well, if you want to hear more Rod, he's got two podcasts that he's doing now. Uh, the Nashy Cast and the Bloody Pit of Rod? Bloody bit of horror. I just call the podcast the Bloody Pit. Okay, there we go. And the the, the blog is the Bloody Pit of Rod. And I, I probably I about two years ago I realized I probably should have named the podcast something else. But I was trying to link the two of them, but now it's become inextricable. People think of the podcast as the Bloody Pit of Rod, and I was like, that's I was trying to leave that part of off off of the title, but it it doesn't matter. Well, here, here, if it, here's if it I just did it myself. <laughs> Yeah, well, if it helps people find the podcast, whatever. But the, there's the Nashy Cast and the Bloody Pit of Rod. I've got um, we've got a, a new episode of um, we, we have a mini episode up on the Nashy Cast right now. I talk, I sat down and talked for about half an hour with Troy Howarth about his brand new book about Paul Nashy. Oh, good. That brief interview is up there as a as a as a small episode right now. And uh, here in the next week or two, I'll be putting up here very soon, I should say. I can't tell exactly when I still have to write show notes. We've got another episode of Beyond Nashy on the Nashy Cast feed where uh, Troy and I sat down with Court Psyops from Cinema Psyops to talk about our three favorite <laughs> Spanish horror films that don't star Paul Nashy. 
we, we tried to limit it to three. Uh, actually, only Troy adhered to the li- to the three thing. Both Court and I cheated like ridiculous scumbags. Uh, we both walked in with a with a list that stretched to double digits and just hoped nobody would notice and then had to admit to it. <laughs> That that's a fun episode. Troy and I on the Bloody Pit are still are continuing our series where we're going through the Universal horror films of the 1940s chronologically. We haven't made it out of 1940 yet, and we've just recorded our third episode. 1940 was a busy year. Yes, it was. Uh, we just mm-hmm. yeah we just recorded our episode on House of Seven Gables, the House of Seven Gables. Oh wow. Uh, with Vincent Price and George Sanders and a heck of a movie. And we had a lot to talk about. So I've just, uh, I've got to get that one ready to get uh, posted. Coming up soon is another Margariti episode. I'm talking to uh, uh, another couple of people to do some rather odd Euro stuff, which I'll just keep, I'll keep that a little close to the chest right now. But um, yeah, yeah. Loving what's on the horizon. A lot of fun stuff. I just, I love being able to dig into this stuff and, well, you know, any reason to rewatch these movies is a good reason, I guess. Well, there you go. There you go. Now, you and I have talked by Facebook Messenger about different ideas to get me on your shows in different capacities. And uh, listeners heard me invite myself over to talk about William Castle Westerns. So, I, you well, know. I'll tell you what, man. I'm serious. I, I wouldn't want to be on the show if I didn't like it. I guess that's what <laughs> well, I'm saying. Well, thank you very so. much. Uh, the William Castle Western thing, I think that's a good idea. Let's Let's definitely talk about that. Right on. We'll do, we'll do that off mic. We won't bore the listeners with this. I want to give Rod uh, a bit of breaking – well, I'm not going to say it's breaking news, but it's exclusive news. I've not announced this anywhere, and I'm not going to until this episode drops, but I want Rod to be the pers- first person to hear this uh, because it has to do with Nashi. So I've got the YouTube channel, the Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel, that I want to do a lot more with. And I think the way to do a lot more with it is just to kind of set myself up with some, some solid shows, some series that I'm going to do. People know that my Paul Nashi experience is very limited. So I'm going to do a YouTube series where I watch as many Paul Nashi movies as I can see. I'm going to call it Catching Up with Nashi. And uh, I'll ask Rod for some guidance you know, <laughs> in terms of where oh, sure. to go, uh, where to start, that sort of thing. But I'm really looking forward to basically watching as many Paul Nashi movies as I possibly can. And then doing a little five, ten minute YouTube video about it. That so, sounds looking great, forward to that. man. That sounds fantastic. What a good idea. I'm really looking forward to it. I've seen a few Nashi films. Uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb, you know, I love. I've had a chance to introduce that more than once. And then the one Mummy movie that he did, I, I really enjoy. Yeah, that's a great film. But, uh, uh, I, I, which I wish, I wish the people that said they had the rights to it would actually put it out on blue here it, in the States. It, it may be still amazing. happen. Fingers crossed. We'll, you know, I'm just going to keep, keep trying to be optimistic. We'll see. We'll see. But it's a great film. And and that's one of the things that I'm a little worried about is some of these movies being a little difficult to get my hands on. But maybe Rod knows some places where I can go pick up some of this stuff, I can, uh, whether uh, it's overseas or whatever. I can so. help you out one way but or I'm, another. I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about the werewolf movies. I felt really bad because Weird Wednesday here at the Joy Cinema this past week, they showed the is it the werewolf versus a vampire woman or what, what is the – Oh, yeah. That's – that. Uh, yeah. The, under multiple titles, uh, over here it was uh, werewolf versus the vampire women. Great movie. And I had to pass on it because I had to finish producing MKR. Uh, so I, I didn't get a chance to go see it, but I – Man, I'm really wanting to see it, and I'm excited to dive into this this area. So I'll keep you posted, Rod, I'll, and I'll let people know what's happening that with that when it happens. It'll be later this year when I launch it. Glad to help you out with that in any way that I can, man. 
Awesome. And and I'll blame it all on you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, um, after doing a Nashy podcast for eight plus years, um, I'm willing to take all the brick bats and all the uh, the praise that I can get because it was it was a really weird project when we started it. And I'm just glad that we stuck around long enough for it to actually end up with Paul Nashy Films being on Blu-ray. Fantastic. And you get to contribute to some of these. In fact, Rod and his partner, Troy, have been on multiple Blu-rays now doing commentary tracks for Paul Nashy films. And I keep, I'm the worst, I'm the worst person to try to remind people is that, yeah, we did, uh, we did commentary tracks for uh, five or six, man, oh, I lost track, a number of uh, Paul Nashy films. For, for Mondo Macabro, we did Inquisition. And uh, for Scream Factory, we did uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb and Hunchback of the Morgue and Night of the Werewolf and one other. And I can't believe that my memory has slipped away from me. But we we also got to do a couple of uh, Amado Diasorio films for for Shout Factory as well. We did the uh, the Blind Dead movie, Night of the Seagulls, which is a great little movie that they were able to release. And then we also did the Lorelei's Grasp, which is a oh, fantastic man. little movie. I love that movie. I, I, you know, it's one of the reasons why I wanted a, a region-free Blu-ray player because for a while it wasn't available over here on Blue, and, and I think I picked it up from Germany oh, on Blu-ray yeah. before it was released here. Which is, which so. is kind of cool because that's where the movie is set. Um, but, yeah. yeah. But the, I, I was really happy with all the information we were able to find out about well, both those Osorio films, honestly, but most especially Lorelai's Grasp because there's just a lot to dig into with that movie. Plus, Helga Linnae. Uncle and A is great. It's a Monster Hunter movie, which I love. You kind of have a cool Blind Dead kind of sort of cameo. Not really, but that's his hand. And, uh, you know, it's just neat. So <laughs> <laughs> I've introduced that movie, too. That's, that's, that's pretty fun. Good film. All right. So where can people find you online? What are the website addresses? Uh, the website, uh, the, the main website where you can find everything is, is uh, The Bloody Pit of Rod. It's my blog where I, uh, I post uh, not just the podcasts and links to the podcast and, and you know a nice little sidebar where you can just play the podcast right off the page, but also my occasional musings about whatever movies I'm watching right then. Uh, I sometimes go on odd jags like Robin Hood movies or, or you know, there, there's, no, there's no telling. I'm, I'm fighting right now to keep myself from going on some brief writing jag about Tarzan movies that I have never watched before and are finally catching up with. But, um, eh, you know, Bloody Pit of Rod's a good place to catch everything. NashiCast has its own website just called NashiCast. You can catch all, all links to all of the shows there. We, uh, we don't have any regular production. I, I try not to keep to any particular schedule because I just you can never tell how things are going to interrupt. I mean, Troy, my, my co-host for the Nashi cast it has a full-time job and two bands. And so scheduling can sometimes be a real bear, but just pay attention. And eventually new things will fall out of our, <laughs> out of our creative endeavors. I will make sure there's links in the show notes to all of that, of course. So people can go check out the Nashi cast and the pit of rod and the bloody pits and all these other things that you're involved with, as well as making sure there's links for people to buy the Blu-ray that I was just talking about the nightmare castle Blu-ray straight from monsterkidradio.net, And I get like, a penny or two off of that. So people can pick that stuff up as well. I'm excited to dive into Paul Nashy films and I'm excited to have you back on the show in the future. I really want to get back to that science fiction set, the Gamma One films. Really want to get into those and anything else we can think of. Sure, man. I'd love to have you back on. Thanks. And like I say, anytime you need me, just let me know. Sounds good. Thanks again, Rod. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Rod Barnett. 
My man. Thank you for being part of the show this week. It was awesome to run into you at Monster Bash. I was so happy to sit down and record with you and to have you come back on the show so soon. We didn't wait like over a year to have you on the show again. That was awesome, too. And to talk about this movie, Dance Macabre or Castle of Blood or whatever the heck the Italians are calling it. You know what? I really enjoyed this film. I know we go all over the place. We go all over the map in this conversation. But I had a good time. Sounds like you had a good time. And I'm hoping the listeners had a good time. And listeners, if you want more Rod Barnett in your life, and why wouldn't you? You want to head over to his various websites. RodBarnett68.podbean.com will get you to the website for the Bloody Pit. Nashicast.blogspot.com will get you to the website for the Nashicast. And PitOfRod.blogspot.com will get you to the Bloody Pit of Rod. Go check all of those sites out. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes for all of this. I can't wait to crash his podcast when we talk about those William Castle Westerns. I still don't know if I was smooth or not the way I invited it myself onto his show, but I'm looking forward to it. And of course, I'm looking forward to having Rod come back on the show to talk about War of the Planets. And then next year, during Edgar August Poll Month, when I have him on to talk about Web of the Spider. Thanks again, Rod. When modern Navy scientists defy the unknown mysteries of the past, perpetuated by centuries of native belief, then nature strikes in all its vengeance in Barab, the unbelievable. For generations, the legend was passed on. They said Baran was there, deep in the still waters. They said, let Baran sleep. That lake water's going to be contaminated after we finish the tests. Probably affect the fish, too. We just can't take any chances. But those people have depended on their lake for their livelihood all their lives. And their parents before them. Anna, now should we be this concerned about a handful of people when we might perfect something that could benefit all mankind? Hmm? All right, Jim. But the Navy commander would not heed their warning. He moved forward, ever searching, ever probing, deeper and deeper, until it was too late. Baran rose from the depths slowly, unrelentingly, to wreak its vengeance on a civilization that wanted to know too much. Tumultuous. Terrifying. Awesome, it will shock you to the core. Baran, the unbelievable. Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes, now... What is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. <laughs> yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love 
werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac to them. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. How of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. reaches of the cosmos, an unknown force is overpowering mankind. I can't get enough buildup. We'll never get off the ground. Countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, fire. The greatest threat in outer space, the war of the planets. You can't stop them. Lazar's no good. You can't stop them. They're light, but they've got shape. They're more than light. When you have them within, you experience a power of mind beyond all comprehension. Working feverishly, courageous astronauts vainly search for a transparent enemy that has overtaken their space station, paralyzing every form of life and motion and prepare for immediate evacuation of all space installations. All the forces on Earth have been mobilized to combat this invisible, supernatural, deadly power that is crippling man's progress in space. No signs of rigor mortis. No signs of decay or corruption. Man's willpower, his will to live, is being crushed. It's a battle of wits against a subtle enemy for which there is no defense. You too will be fascinated, awed, gripped, mesmerized, enslaved by the will of the deadly diaphanoids. What is it you want? Friendship. I know how to deal with them. General, I'm going to call radiation control. Wait, Mike. Let's go! Get back here, please! Where do you think you're going? I can make it, Commander! It's a desperate fight, but a handful of fearless spacemen search for every sign, for every face that might hide the seed, the spawn of death that threatens to destroy the Earth. We don't know whether we should treat them as living or dead, whether to do biopsy or autopsy. The apparatus is not required. I don't think that's for you to decide. I will do the thinking, Commander. It's a power of gigantic proportion. It corrodes the very will of mankind. This is a film you cannot miss. Man, pitched against the unknown, the incredible, the war of the planets. The War of the Planets.
brings us to the end of the episode this time around. There is no feedback. I do have a voicemail and I'm going to sit on it until probably next time. And I said probably, well, I'll get to that here in a second, but I'll probably get to that next time. Uh, no Brenda this week. And, and the reason for that is we actually have family visiting from out of town. There was some health stuff going on and Brenda's fine, but you know, just kind of threw our lives into a slightly different schedule than we normally have during the week. And then with the haze in the air and Brenda's inflammation acting up with the rheumatoid arthritis and some extra stress involved with something coming up with me, well, she's just not available to record the feedback. And that's okay. We'll have her next week. But we do have a voicemail sitting here from Todd Brown from the Haunted Cinema that I'm eager to share with everybody. And we'll do that. And if you have some feedback you want to send in for the show, either about this episode, any previous episode of Monster Kid Radio, or anything coming up that you want to talk about, a local event, a convention, a screening that you're going to, call in. Leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503 479 MKR, or you can drop me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I know the big Monster Bash movie marathon and expo is happening this weekend, August 17th and 18th. It's happening at the Palace Theater in Canton, Ohio. Man, I wish I could be there. They're going to be showing things like Godzilla, the giant behemoth, the giant claw, them, King Kong. Man, there are so many movies they're going to be showing. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to monsterbashnews.com so you can check it out. Doors open at 3 p.m. on Friday. There will be vendors, including That's Terry Riffick, so make sure you drop by and say hey to them. I know Steve Turek's going to be at the event as well, so let him know that uh, Derek said hi. And if anybody wants to call in from that event, I'd love to include you in the mix on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. Of course, our contact information is available over on our website where you can also find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter account. And if you're a podcaster and you want to include a promo for Monster Kid Radio in one of your shows, there's a place for you to download a Monster Kid Radio promo as well. And the Patreon page is currently in a state of flux, but we have a link to our Patreon page so you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio. I really need to put a link to our YouTube channel there too, shouldn't I? I wonder if I can get that done before this episode goes out. Probably not, but we do have a YouTube page as well. Just look up Monster Kid Radio over on YouTube because that's where we're going to be running the Catching Up with Paul Nashy web series. I'm going to put out the introductory video. Well, actually, as soon as this episode goes out, it, it's available. So you should be able to see that there. And it's just kind of breaking down a little bit more in detail what I plan on doing with the Paul Nashy thing. I'm really looking forward to getting into those movies and beginning that journey. And I'm going to have some extra time to do that because I imagine I'm going to have some extra bed rest coming up because this Friday, they're opening up my nose like the hood of a car. I have a deviated septum and collapsing nasal valves. And I've talked about this on the show before and on Facebook pretty openly. I have to have that corrected. And it's been a challenge because since I was separated from my job, my health insurance situation kind of went screwy. So there's that aforementioned stress that's kind of settled itself here at the Monster Kid Radio headquarters. It's happening on Friday. It's probably an outpatient procedure, but because I have sleep apnea, they want to make sure there aren't any complications there. So they may try to keep me overnight. I really don't want to stay overnight, but if something's going to happen, I suppose staying overnight is the best option because I'll actually be where people can help me. I, I can't imagine anything's going to go wrong. But yeah, they're going to go in and uh, fix the deviated septum and the collapsing nasal valves with cartilage that they're going to harvest from my right ear. Yeah, um... 
That'll be fun. And twice now, the surgeon has said they're going to open my nose like the hood of a car so he can really get in there and see what he's doing, which is a slightly better analogy than the first doctor I saw who said my nose was like a meat sandwich that just had too much meat inside. So they're going to open that up, scoop out some of the meat and put it back together again. I don't even know where that analogy comes from. The hood of the car thing, I get. The meat sandwich? Uh, What? Anyway, I imagine I'm going to have some recovery time, which will involve me laying on the bed in the bedroom with my Roku running. Going to watch some Paul Nashy films and who knows what else. Although I'm really hoping that it doesn't sideline me too much because next week, oh man, one of my favorite films I want to talk about here on Monster Kid Radio as part of Edgar August Poe Month, the Bela Lugosi film Murders in the Rue Morgue. We're going to be talking about that movie with the man behind the X Meets Y podcast, Jonathan Inbody. That is going to be a blast. I can't talk about Bela Lugosi enough here on the show. So to talk about this film, which, you know, over the years, I feel like it's starting to finally get the attention and respect it deserves. But for a long time, it was underrated and maybe it still is. Come back next week to find out why it shouldn't be when we talk about that film here on the show. That does bring us to the end of the podcast. So before I sign off, I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, thank you for being part of the Monster Kid Radio audience, the experience for me, and for all of your support over the years, whether it's retweeting tweets, sharing Facebook posts when I announce a new episodes come out, pledging to the Patreon campaign, giving us an honest review on the iTunes store, or just touching base and saying, hey, I'm listening and I'm enjoying the show. I appreciate it. I really do. It means a lot to me to have you guys and gals there. I talk a lot about how this show has really helped me find my tribe, and I mean that. Man, I know I've been a monster kid pretty much from the jump. As soon as I discovered monsters in the grade school, man, I was hooked. But it wasn't really until I started reaching out and meeting people online the way that I am now that I really felt like who I'm supposed to be. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it, guys and gals, from the bottom of my monster heart. Also, before I sign off, I just want to give a shout out or... My condolences, really, to the friends and family of Wes Shank. Wes Shank is somebody who had gone to Monster Bash quite a bit. I had met him the one time at this last Monster Bash and spent a few minutes with him. And he was a really sweet, really nice guy. He is the caretaker of the original blob. He has a bucket of what remains of the blob from the original movie, the blob. And it's a gooey, red, kind of smelly, but not quite mess. But he's gotten a bucket. He's got a light that you can shine in it and you can take a picture with it. And I did. You can't really make out the blob in it, but it's still kind of cool. He was a really nice guy. And I always meant to keep going back to talk to him. And I never did. And, and I kind of regret that because this past week, Wes passed away. Uh, it was an accident, completely unexpected. And he's gone. So I, again, anybody who knew Wes... My condolences. He brought a lot of joy to a lot of us monster kids. So, thank you, Wes. Rest in peace. Dave! Doc Hallen's been killed. Doc Hallen? What happened? It's over at his place. you got to come now. Oh, wait a minute, Steve. Tell us what happened. Well, I'm trying to tell you. Now, this thing had killed the doc. Well, what was it? Stop with it, kid. But it's kind of like a... It's kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger and bigger. It... <laughs> Every one of you watching this screen, look out, because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived 
will be oozing into this theater. Teenagers see it first, like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Hey, come on, I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. Nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation, and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the Bob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Octung Lab. That belongs to the band Los Havilland. It's from their album Cocktail Caracas, which you can find through Green Cookie Records at greencookierecords.bandcamp.com. Go check them out. Check out the album. It's 12 euros. It's totally worth it. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week where I probably will sound just slightly different because of the whole nose thing. Anyway, ciao. (laughs) 